the National Archives podcast series. This is a three-part talk recorded at the National Archives on the 11th of Feb 2017. The event was organised as part of Outing the Past, the National LGBT History Festival. This is part three, with Hilary McCullum discussing the role of lesbians in the fight for votes for women. Hi, my name's Hilary McCollum, I'm a writer. But before I, 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 I talk about the suffragettes, I just wanted to, to talk about Mark Ashton. I don't know if anybody's been to see the film Pride. Yeah. yeah. So today is 30 years today since Mark Ashton died. Mark Ashton was the main character in uh, Pride. He died on the 11th of February 1987. He was 26. He died of AIDS. Um, and in his short life, he was a fantastic campaigner, a gay activist, socialist. He was also a very funny, generous, kind man. Uh, and he's somebody who made LGBT history. So I just wanted on, on this day that's the anniversary of his death to, to mark his life and the importance that he had for the LGBT community. And, and I guess that for all of us, you know, to remember those people who've made it possible for us to have come to where we are now. So that's what I want to just say about Mark. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the possibility that some leading figures in the militant suffragette movement were lesbians or had lesbian relationships. And I say the possibility because that's part of the difficulty that you're often in in lesbian history is how uh, hidden and invisible women in same-sex relationships were for uh, many periods in history, including the Edwardian era, where lesbianism was literally pretty much unspeakable. The records that we do have are fragmentary and opaque. Um, women's diaries and records that they may have kept were often destroyed. Um, there's the whole issue of did they do it and how are we to know um, what would constitute proof. You know, people talk about the smoking gun. Are we looking for a smoking dildo? I don't know. Um, <laughs> And how do you read between the lines? Um, I don't know if uh, anybody else has come across this phrase, lesbian-like, that was coined by Judith Bennett, uh, historian <coughs> Judith Bennett. But certainly many of the leading suffragettes were what I think you could categorise as at least lesbian-like, if not lesbian. Uh, their lives were dedicated to, to other women and they certainly had opportunities for same-sex love. I'm going to start by talking about the Pankhurst because they're the suffragettes that most people have heard of. Um, in 1903, the, uh, Emmeline Pankhurst and her three daughters set up the uh, Women's <coughs> Social and Political Union. Can people hear me at the back? No, I can't hear you very really quite. Okay, I'll talk louder still. Okay, so 1903, the Women's Social and Political Union was established by the Pankhursts. Um, so the leading figures were Emmeline, Christabel and Sylvia. Sylvia on the, the one on that far side, whichever side that is. I'm not very good at left and right. Sylvia, there's absolutely no evidence that she had sexual relationships with women. Emmeline, the, the mother, the woman here, she had a very close relationship with the lesbian composer Dame Ethel Smith or Smythe, and we haven't decided which it is. They often shared a room together, they would be in and out of each other's cells when they were in Holloway. When Emmeline Pankhurst thought she was dying on hunger strike, she left a personal message for Ethel Smythe that was to be given to her if and when she died. Um, so nothing conclusive, but certainly interesting that the leader of the suffragette movement had a close relationship and shared a room with somebody that was known to be a lesbian. 
Um, so I put her in the maybe category. Christabel, I would put in the highly likely category. Um, and for a number of reasons. She never married. She wasn't known to have any sexual relationships with men. So does that mean we can conclude, oh, somebody didn't marry, that means definitely they're a lesbian? Well, obviously not. But I think to conclude the opposite, that none of these women uh, were lesbians, none of them were having same-sex relationships, seems even more ridiculous to me. And for Christabel, I think there is evidence that would suggest that she may well have been having uh, sexual relationships with other women. In 1901, she fought, when she was 20, she formed a very close relationship with a lesbian couple, Esther Roper and Eva Gore Booth. Um, and she used to spend a, a great deal of time with them. And throughout her life, all of the close relationships that she had were with other women. And I think the balance of the evidence is that she, had, she certainly had an intense romantic relationship with this woman, Annie Kenny. And I think that the likelihood is that that was a sexual relationship. Annie Kenny was a mill worker from Oldham. Um, she first heard Christabel speak in 1905 um, and she was completely drawn to Christabel. She said, before I knew what I had done, I had promised to work up a meeting for Miss Pankhurst among the factory women of Oldham. And she walked Christabel to the station and Christabel invited her to come to tea the following Saturday. And Annie writes, the following week I lived on air. I simply could not eat. It was as though half of me was present. Where the other half was, I never asked. And she continued to visit Christabel every Saturday until they both moved to London to advance the suffrage cause. Uh, but before their departure for London, they were involved in the first ever militant act uh, for women's suffrage. And that resulted in the first ever imprisonment. Um, and again, Annie writes, being my first visit to jail, the newness of the life numbed me. I do remember the plank bed, the skilly, the prison clothes. I also remember going to church and sitting next to Christabel, who looked very coy and pretty in her prison cap. She took my hand tenderly and just held it. Of course, there's nothing conclusive in that, but at least three suffragettes, Emmeline Patrick Lawrence, Claire Morden and Mary Blaithwaite, spoke of falling in love with Annie the first time that they met her. Uh, and Mary Blaithwaite's diary records that in July 1908, she slept with Annie. Sometime later, she writes that Miss Brown is sleeping in Annie's room now. While these could be non-sexual contacts, the intensity of Mary Blaithwaite's recordings certainly seem to suggest otherwise. And I think also the perceptions of others in the movement at the time also suggest otherwise. The Women's Social and Political Union split in 1907 uh, and 70 members left to form the Women's Freedom League. And what was uh, given as, at the time as the reason for that split uh, and what's generally recorded in history books now as the reason was that uh, the Pankhurst were seen as unaccountable. So it was issues about the leadership. And that certainly was a key driver for that split. But after the vote was won, Teresa Billington Gregg, who was one of the women who, who formed the Women's uh, Freedom League, said that she was concerned that some leaders of the Women's Social and Political Union had what she called unhealthy emotional attachments with other members. <laughs> she claimed that Annie was emotionally possessed by Christabel. And she said that there was an immediate and strong emotional attraction between Emmeline Pethick Lawrence and Annie Kenny. Indeed, so emotional and so openly paraded 
that it frightened me. I saw it as something unbalanced and primitive and possibly dangerous to the movement. Uh, which, I don't know if people have heard the kind of concept of lesbian baiting, which is where any kind of independent, autonomous woman gets called a lesbian because, um, as a way of kind of undermining her uh, and bringing her down. Um, and actually, my brother, when he came, my brother's six years older than, than me, and when he came home from university, I would have been 13, and he came home from university and he was telling a friend that he'd accidentally stumbled into the women's group at university, and he dismissed them as a bunch of dykes, prudes, and ugly ducklings. And I think you get the same kind of sense of that here in this cartoon, which is from the period of the suffrage movement. Um, although lesbianism was unspeakable at the time, uh, suffragettes were accused of being unwomanly, of being man-haters. Uh, and kind of since the suffrage movement, the, the history of the movement that's been, been written... Uh, a lot of it by male historians, there has often been a very prurient interest in the sexuality of leading members of the movement. They've been kind of psychoanalyzed as enjoying the, the force feeding and enjoying the torture, that they had some kind of sexual rapture for them. Um, so what's happened then is you've had some feminist historians have said... Um, these accusations that leading members were lesbians uh, are outrageous and they've tended to dismiss um, dismiss them, uh, particularly uh, uh, accusations that Annie Kenny had lesbian relationships, um, which upset her son. And I think we need to kind of guard against lesbian baiting, but we shouldn't do that in a way that actually says and dismisses the idea that these women were lesbians or that any of them were lesbians and that just dismisses um, what evidence there is. And as somebody who was very active in the second wave of feminism, it was full of lesbians. Why on earth would the first wave of feminism have been so much different? Um, which takes me then to a woman who you may not have heard of, but who was a very key figure called Grace Rowe. Um, she was another person who was captivated by Christabel Pankhurst. Um, she heard her speak in Hyde Park in 1908 and then joined the movement and they became very close. And she became the chief organiser of the Women's Social and Political Union in 1913. So people may not know this, uh, Christabel Pankhurst went into exile in Paris in 1912 um, and she then had a chief organiser who was running the movement on the ground. The first one was Annie Kenny and the second one was Grace Rowe and she was running the movement wanted by the police, on the run, dressed as a chorus girl from April 1913 until she was finally arrested in May 1914. Uh, after the war in the early 20s, Grace Rowe went to live with uh, Christabel Pankhurst, first in Canada and then in the USA, uh, until they went their separate ways in 1925. But they remained close and Grace Rowe was with Christabel Pankhurst when Christabel died in 1958. In an interview in 1974, Grace Rowe said that Christabel Pankhurst had been the apple of her eye. Uh, she also said in an interview that she had, over the course of her life, had had a series of very close, strong attachments with women over the course of her life and that one strong relationship would then be uh, replaced by another. And the three women that she mentioned were Christabel Pankhurst, Dr. Miriam Van Waters, who is recognised as another lesbian, and Clara Codd, who is another 
woman who is widely rumoured to be a lesbian. And these were the women who were central in Grace Rowe's life. Uh, Grace Rowe, just as an aside, because I couldn't resist it, I thought I'd just mention the bodyguard, which some of you may be aware of. So there were a group of jujits who trained suffragettes who protected the leadership. Um, they were trained by a married woman called Edith Garrod. Um, uh, but they were organised by a woman called Gert Harding. Now, I haven't got any hard evidence about Gert Harding, but I'll tell you the little bit I do. She definitely never married. She has no known relationship with a man. And as a child, she used to skip out of doing the housework uh, to go in the woods hunting and fishing with her pet raccoon. So (laughs) I feel inclined to claim her. Uh, (laughs) uh, Gert Harding took... um, was involved in a, a, a militant action with a woman called Lillian Lenton in 1912. They broke into Kew Gardens just around the corner uh, and uh, damaged a, a collection of rare orchids. Um, Lillian Lenton had joined the movement uh, in January 1912. She went from smashing windows to being one of the most prolific arsonists that the suffragette movement had. Uh, in February 1913, she... Um, was caught having burnt down the tea pavilion at Kew Gardens with another woman called Olive Worry. They were remanded in custody, uh, hunger struck and were force fed and Lillian Lenton, the force feeding went wrong. Uh, liquid ended up in her lungs and she was uh, released from prison very quickly because they were frightened that she was going to die in prison. Um, she suffered pleurisy and that's really the reason why the Cat and Mice Act was introduced, that, that force feeding gone wrong was a key reason why the government introduced the Cat and Mice Act, which meant that if women went on hunger strike, they would wait until they got weak, and then they'd be released, and when they recovered sufficiently, they'd be rearrested and brought back into prison. Um, when she recovered from the pleurisy, Lillian Lenton went on the run, burning down buildings all over the country. Um, she then showed up in June 1913 in Doncaster in court. Uh, somebody else was... She was in the... So she's in the audience... Uh, in the court and she uh, comes forward because somebody else has been accused of a crime that she committed and said, oh no, actually, that was me. (laughs) Uh, And she gets arrested and she tells the police, um, fine, arrest me, I'm going to go on hunger strike, you'll have to release me, I will go on the run and I will carry on burning down buildings all around this country until the government gives in, gives women the vote. And that's exactly what she did. She, um, she was released to a house in Leeds. Uh, it was watched by detectives and she escaped uh, dressed as a grocery boy. On another occasion, she evaded the police dressed as a dapper young man, complete with a hat and a cane uh, and a moustache. Um, if you want to find out a bit more, I've wrote, written a blog. The blog um, address is at the bottom. I've written a blog about Lillian Lenton. But I kind of guess also in terms of after, after the suffragette movement, in, she joined the Scottish Women Hospitals Unit. She volunteered for that during the war. And she served in Serbia with three other women, two of whom were definitely known to have a lesbian relationship, Vera Holm and Evelyn Haverfield. And the other one, Else Inglis, is widely rumoured also to have been a lesbian. So these are the women that she spent her, her time with. She, again, no known relationships with men, never married. The last two women I'm going to talk about are Emily Wilding Davison, who probably people will have heard of as the suffragette who was critically injured, fatally injured at the Derby, and Mary Lee. Um, 
Mary Lee was a working class woman from Manchester. She was the first suffragette stone thrower. She was in the first group of women who were force fed. Uh, she had been married, um, but she had a very close uh, relationship with Emily Wilding Davison. Um, they took actions together, but also Emily Wilding Davison took actions to protest things that were done to Mary. So Mary Lee, when she was force fed in 1909, uh, Emily Wilding Davison smashed windows uh, and was imprisoned for it and also then was force fed herself. Um, in 1911, uh, Emily Wilding Davison was the first suffragette to use arson as a tactic when she set pillar boxes on fire. She did that because uh, Mary Lee had had uh, what she considered to be a punitive, a disproportionately punitive sentence. Um, in 1912, Emily Wilding Davison gave Mary Lee a copy of Walt Whitman's poems. Um, underlined in that collection of poems is the institution of the dear love of comrades. And there are a number of quotes that are underlined throughout the book, though it's unclear who did the underlining or when they did them. But I just wanted to read you a couple of them. Um, so one says, I will leave all and come and make the hymns of you. None has understood you, but I understand you. I only am he who places over you no master, owner, better, God, beyond what waits intrinsically in yourself. And the final highlighted quote reads, Dear friend, whoever you are, here, take this kiss. I give it especially to you. Do not forget me. I feel like one who has done his work. I progress on. The unknown sphere, more real than I dreamed, more direct, darts awakening rays about me. So long. Remember my words. I love you. I depart from materials. I am as one disembodied, triumphant, dead. Mary saw Emily the night before the derby. Uh, they were at the Suffragette Summer Fair, Fair together. Mary went to Epsom Cottage Hospital when Emily was critically, crit critically injured. Uh, when it was clear that Emily wasn't going to recover, she decorated Emily's bed along with another suffragette called Rose Lamartine Yates. She decorated her bed in suffragette colours. After Emily died, it was Mary Lee that pinned Emily's hunger strike medal on her dress. It was Mary Lee who placed a copy of Walt Whitman's poems in her hands. She set up the Emily Wilding Davison Memorial Lodge. Every year on the anniversary of Emily's death, she would go to Morpeth where Emily was buried, draped in the flag that Emily had taken with her to the Derby. We can't prove one way or another, whether that was a sexual relationship. But it is clear that these two women were passionate about each other and that they had a very <coughs> intense relationship. And there are many other suffragettes that I could have talked about today. Um, and as I say, we probably will never know because the proof isn't there. And I guess probably for a lot of us, when we're dead, what proof have we left that we definitely had sex with somebody of the same sex? <laughs> you know? Will other people be reading between the lines on our behalf? Um, so I'm just going to leave you with a quote from Annie Kenny. The changed life into which most of us entered was a revolution in itself. No home life. No one to say what we should do or what we should not do. No family ties. We were free and alone in a great, brilliant city. Scores of young, young women, scarcely out of their teens, met together in a revolutionary movement outlaws or breakers of laws, independent of everything and everybody.
fearless and self-confident. Thanks. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.